Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning solely based on the finished work of Christ, our Redeemer. Jesus, we thank you for your incarnation and for your perfect life of substitution and your sacrificial death upon Calvary. We thank you for the promise that we have through your resurrection and through the indwelling of your spirit who now controls us and illuminates the text of Scripture to us. You, our triune God, are to be praised this morning. We come to you to hear your word, and this is a supernatural gathering of your born-again people, and we need your spirit to illuminate us once again because we are weak. We need your strength, the strength you promised through Christ, through your spirit, through your word, and through your church. So we come and we submit ourselves to you, our king, this morning. And we put our hands out as beggars, knowing that you are a good king and you will care for us. We ask you to feed us. We ask you to use us this morning to exalt your name through the edification of your people and through the evangelization of the world as we are called to be your disciples and fishers of men. Amen. If you would, please open God's word with me to Mark's gospel. Mark 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. For the flow of the text and read down to verse 20, we will primarily be looking at verses 16 through 20. Today we will be studying about following our master's voice, following our master's voice and hear the word of God as I read it to you from the account in Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus Christ, God the Son, Jesus Christ appeared, and he came and was preaching. Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the reason he preached that was because he is the king who had come in the flesh. He had come to deliver his people from their sin through his message of grace. And his kingdom was revealed through his preaching and through his authority. His preaching transformed the souls of those whom he called. His message and his ministry does that, doesn't it? Jesus' message still does that today. It still transforms our spiritual condition. We receive from Him the imputation of His righteousness through His message of grace. We also have a transformation of our actions that comes as a result of His Spirit who now dwells in us. And in reality, what Jesus did was He came in 14 and 15 and preached a message about turning from sin by the power of the Spirit and turning in faith to God's message of grace by the power of the Spirit. And we actually get to see an illustration of that in the next passage we're going to look at in 16 through 20. Isn't it great? In 14 and 15, He says, here's the message. Here's what I'm calling the people who will be in my kingdom to do. And then He says, if you want to see what that looks like, look at 16 through 20, because here is an example of those who have believed and turned from their sins and pursued my call on their life. In Mark 1, 16 through 20, On your outline, we learn that those who hear and obey, that's very important, that phrase together, hear and obey their master's voice are called to be disciples, mathetes, learners, students, followers of Christ, Christians. The master's voice calls us into a supernatural mission. We see that in verse 17. And secondly, the master's voice calls disciples or calls us into an immediate Submission, we see that in verses 18 through 20. There is no difference between a disciple and a Christian. It's synonymous, okay? 
And when I look at the lives of those who are called to be Christians, those who are called to hear and obey their master's voice, I find that they're very common people. They're not extraordinary. The call to follow Christ is an extraordinary calling, but it's given to very ordinary people like me and you. That's what we see really in Mark 1.16 to begin with. He chooses simple men, fishermen. Basically untrained, uneducated men, untrained in any other kind of skill other than fishing. He chose common men to train and common men to carry forth the gospel message and to be his disciples. Now, when you read 16 through 20, it basically tells us the kind of people Jesus calls are ordinary people. They disciples, but they're they're that just simply means they're learners. They're like us in many ways. They're not impressive. What you don't see here, you don't see Jesus calling scholars. Jesus does not call theologians. Jesus does not call scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, or priests, does he? He doesn't choose the overly talented. He actually uses people who are a lot like us in many ways. If you look at the lives of the apostles in particular, the twelve that were set apart to be the special sent messengers, those disciples who were set apart for a specific ministry, they 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 are compiled with people like Peter, who was a hothead, right? They are filled with people who are weak spiritually in many ways. They're average people. They're plain people. Yet they're called into an extraordinary ministry because of the Spirit and the Word that equips them. They are called to do this and able to for God's glory. And I find that very hopeful to me this morning because, frankly, I think most of us are probably pretty ordinary Most of us, including myself in particular, I know are pretty common and not all that influential on our own. But we have a message that has been imparted to us by the resurrected Jesus. And through his spirit, we are called into a supernatural mission and ministry and able to do what he calls us to go into. Because we are his mathetes, we are his disciples, his followers. So we need to be following our king and our master. Now, when you come to Mark 1.16, what you need to know just as far as history goes, Mark 1.16 picks up about a year after Jesus has passed through Galilee where he called these men in particular to salvation. See, they had the call to salvation about a year, maybe six months to a year before this. They were called by Jesus himself to salvation, and they began to follow his itinerant ministry, his private ministry that took him all through Jerusalem and then back now into Galilee. Now he's in Galilee. It's not a private ministry. Now it's a public preaching ministry. That's what we see happen in verse 14. It says he came after John was arrested. There's a year gap between verse 13 and 14. These men followed him. These men were called by him to salvation. They followed his ministry. And when they returned back to their home region, these men did what would come naturally. These men had been following Jesus around since he had called them to salvation, listening, gleaning, watching And now they're probably hungry and financially in a bind. So they go back to fishing, which is just a normal thing to do. It's their vocation. It's what they were trained to do. They're back into the very region in which fishing is actually very profitable. Matter of fact, we think that Simon and Andrew, James and John, all had the business working together. James and John, their father, owned the business. More than likely, Simon and Andrew worked for them and with them in their business. That's really where our text picks up in 116. If you if you understand anything about their vocation, I think it will help you understand Jesus's calling here to them in particular. In Galilee, in this region, fishing was essential to living. Okay, fishing provided food to prevent starvation and it provided financial security. Okay, it provided jobs and it provided food. Jesus chooses fishermen here intentionally. I think he does that to teach them in particular that they can move from feeding men physically to feeding them spiritually through their vocation as disciples of Christ. He's taking their physical vocation and he's transforming it. He's letting them see in a kind of a parallel way that, look, you're called to do something greater than fish. You can feed others with the gospel of Christ. You can make others rich with the gospel of Christ. In Mark 1.17, we see our first point. 
we learn that the master's voice calls his disciples into a super, supernatural mission. Verse 17, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He said, follow me. I will transform your life if you follow me. He's calling them. This actually isn't a choice. This is an imperative. It's a command. And he's going to transform again their vocation through his calling. And again, he does that when he calls you to salvation as well. You're called into a supernatural mission when he calls you to salvation. If you are a stay-at-home mom, you have now been called to be a stay-at-home mom for the glory of God. To lead your children to Christ. To serve other women in the church. If you're working on a job, whatever the vocation is, that job has been transformed at conversion, and now it is your mission field. Ultimately, it's not about building your account or your prestige. It's about exalting Christ and reaching out to others with the skills you have been given. That's why he gave you the skills and the talents and the abilities that you have. It's not ultimately to build up your financial portfolio. Is to lead others to the glorious riches of Christ. You can do that with your hobbies. You can do that with everything in life. Everything is transformed when we are born again. We are called to be followers of Christ in every avenue that God places in front of us. Every part of our life. Jesus knows that he's calling them to do something that they're not completely equipped to do yet. He tells them he's going to teach them. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Make you become fishers of men. But they have to first obey Christ's command. And if you want to be a faithful child of God, if you want to be a faithful disciple, that's where your discipleship has to begin. It has to begin with obeying God's revealed word. If you tell me you want to be a disciple, but you don't submit to God's authority in the word, if you don't submit to God's means of grace through the church, teaching, equipping, holding you accountable, then you're not truly honest about being a disciple because these are the means God has given to disciple us, to train us. But first we have to submit to his authority so that we can be trained properly. But those who are called by him will want to do this. They will want to follow him as it shows here in verse 17. He says, follow me and notice the response that they give. They immediately obey him. They follow Jesus with immediate urgency, immediate obedience but they recognize that he is their savior and their master. I think that's really relevant here. There's a lot of people today who actually want to talk about Jesus being the savior of sinners. And one day I'll make him my master. I'll serve him. There is no distinction. That is part of what it means to be a child of God. You are called into the ministry of Jesus. You are called to follow him as a disciple. And those that God calls to salvation will hear their master's voice and they will long to obey him, just like the disciples here. And we see that even in the rest of Scripture. If you would, turn with me to John 10. John's Gospel, John 10. In John 10, we see that when God's people hear their master, they hear his voice, they long to obey him. We long to obey him because he is our Savior. And we long to obey him and tell others about his greatness. John 10, verse 22, states it very clearly that if you hear his voice, you will long to obey his call and command on your life. Actually, let's start at 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, that's just that's not a clever, nice little way of saying they'll be saved and they'll, they'll just call themselves Christians. When Jesus speaks of following him, he means action, obedience. It's relevant to the way they live their life. It says they will follow me. And then in verse 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now, knowing who you are, knowing how you're redeemed, knowing where you're placed once you are born again should be what motivates you to follow him, should it not? You are secure in Christ. He died for you. He purchased you with his own blood. Now he has set you in a perfect, secure state in his own hands. And now when he calls you, you ought to follow his command, right? He is the Lord of your life. 
He is your Savior. He has brought you out of sin's bondage into freedom in His grace so that you can follow Him. And your life has been bought back from sin so that it would glorify Him through obedience. You don't do anything to earn God's favor. You don't do anything to keep God's favor. But you do everything because of God's favor as an act of worship and thanksgiving. Now, Jesus makes it clear in, back in Mark's gospel, Mark 1.17, he makes it clear that when he gave this call, it was a command because the command was tied to a mission, an action. It wasn't just follow me. He says, follow me in verse 17 and I will make you become something. I'll make you active. Come to me and I will create in you the ability by my spirit and through my word to do what I've called you to do, which is to fish for men. Just as hard as you fished for fish your whole life, you're going to be fishing for men even harder. It's going to be your greater vocation. It's an urgent call. You must do this because it is essential for their salvation and for God's glory. It is God's predetermined plan and purpose for him to call us to salvation and send us out as fishers of men. You understand something when you read about being a fisher of men here in the New Testament, it actually has to do with judgment. Jesus is saying here, I'm calling you out to fish for men because the king has come. I have come to bring good news, but when I come again, I'm going to bring judgment and wrath. If they do not come, they will receive me not as their savior, but as their judge. So therefore, go rescue my people from their sin through my commission. Now, the reason I know that is, is because the Old Testament tells us that. Go with me to Jeremiah 16. This is where the whole phraseology of being a fisher of men comes from. This is why Jesus uses this phrase. Jeremiah 16 and verse 14. Now, most people don't even tie that phrase with Old Testament thinking. But that's exactly why Jesus uses it in the context of calling Jewish disciples at this point. They understood that a fisher of men was going to rescue them. Look what it says in verse 14 of Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. They've been in discipline under God's hand. He says, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. This is a sovereign act of God pursuing his elect people. He is going after them. He says, I'm going to do that. And here's how I'm going to do it. In verse 16, behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. He sends for fishers that will go out and catch them. Fishers of men who will pursue the people that he has called to himself. And that is what we are called to do as Christians, as disciples of Christ. Being called to be a disciple by Christ is the highest calling you could receive on your life. When you were regenerated, it wasn't just to purchase you out of hell. It was to make you an instrument of grace. You were called to be the voice of God in the earth. You were called to proclaim His goodness, His greatness, His sovereignty. And you're also called to proclaim His judgments against those who rebel against Him. It is God's predestined plan to do that through us, the church. We are called and commissioned by Christ himself, the resurrected Jesus in Matthew 28. We're called to be his ambassadors, called and commissioned to spread the good news about our Savior. Again, that's the highest calling you could ever receive. There is no diploma higher than this. There is no recognition by man that's higher than this. You've been recognized by God as a sinner, been saved by a son, called into his ministry, exalted to the place of a missionary as an ambassador. For the resurrected Jesus, that's your calling as a disciple. You are an ambassador of Christ. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the good of others. We're controlled by the love of Christ to conform ourselves to his image, submit to his authority so that we can declare his greatness through our transformed lives. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. This actually states our calling as disciples. We are converted 
to be ambassadors. We are converted and called to be learners so that we can be proclaimers. See, the idea of becoming a professional student in Christianity doesn't cut it with Christ. You come, you learn, you're equipped, you're sent forth. You proclaim, you make disciples, you teach, they're sent forth. God has always working through His means of grace to do that through His Spirit, His Word, His church. But nonetheless, it is part of His predetermined plan to use individuals in this ministry like us, who are plain and ordinary and common. And He uses us in extraordinary ways, as He does here, as He states here in 5.14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I love that passage. What calls me to go out into ministry? What calls me to be a missionary? What calls me to be an evangelist, a witness, a faithful Christian? The love of Christ. The love of Christ controls me. I ponder the gospel. I look into the the scripture and I see the glory of Jesus and his saving love for sinners like me and you. That controls me. That causes me to weep for the lost. That causes my life to be submitted to his authority and holiness. To abstain from sin, which will cause distance between he and I. And then cause me to be distanced from my mission. It's the love of Christ that sanctifies us. Disciples are called to be controlled by Christ. The more you know him through scripture, the more you will do for him out of thankfulness. Verse 16 says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, listen. You were created, recreated, granted salvation. You received an imputed righteousness that changes your account before God, but it also changes your life on the earth. You are called to be a new creation created by Christ, his love, his life, his death, his resurrection. You're called to do so for a purpose. And he tells us what that is. The old self, right? Old ego That's what it means here. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I have a new life in Christ. I received a new purpose in life, a new vocation in life. And it's going to affect all my other vocations, all my other hobbies and interests. But what's great here is we know that God gets all the glory for this, according to verse 18. This new desire, this new creation, everything we have that's controlling us, all this is from God, he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us. Church, this is amazing. This is God's gift to you. He gave you the ministry of reconciliation. And here's what it is. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... If you're saved, if you're regenerated, converted by God's message of grace that came through the work of Christ, therefore we are ambassadors for this Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is your mission and that is your message. That is why you are called to be a disciple, a mathetes, to fish for men with this message. If you have received this message, how could you not proclaim it? You have been reconciled with the holy and righteous God. You, a sinner, a willful sinner, a rebellious sinner, an eager sinner, an offender of God, at war with God. You were reconciled through the love of His Son, which came into the earth and manifested itself in a crib, went to a cross, landed in a grave, then rose to declare His holiness and authority. And He is coming as our Lord again to receive us to Himself and give us rewards for His work. Isn't that amazing? That's your message. That's what you're learning as a disciple of Christ. 
That's what you're called to proclaim. That is God's predestined plan for us. Not just heaven. Matter of fact, in heaven, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be proclaiming the gospel over and over and over. I love that. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Spurgeon says when he dies, the first thing he's going to do is go preach the gospel to an angel because they do not know what we have received. We should be that eager to tell everyone about this message as God's disciples, as his ambassadors. We represent Jesus in the earth. That is a that is an honor that is way beyond us. It's an honor that comes to us through a supernatural call. Being a disciple is a weighty commission. The call to be a disciple isn't an option. It's God's plan for all Christians and it's our honor. The calling comes from Christ. It's empowered by Christ. It's encouraged by Christ. It's coming to us from Him, for Him, and it's coming back to Him in the sense of we're being obedient with it. It's requiring a supernatural power and His means of grace. And that came to us at salvation. And it's defined for us in Ephesians, if you'll turn with me there. Ephesians 3. What we need to be a disciple is stated for us in this epistle. You see, Jesus calls those men to be his disciples in his earthly ministry. He takes them in, and if you will, he is the perfect school of theology that they are called into. They are called into Christ to be seated at his feet, to be taught by him, and then he imparts to them the truths that we now see in the epistles. Now, we're given the epistles so that we can replicate the discipleship ministry of Jesus in the church. And so what we need comes to us here revealed in the epistles. In Ephesians 3, we see it defined in verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, Paul the Apostle says, I was made a minister. Isn't that an interesting phrase? It doesn't say, of this gospel, I chose to be a pastor, minister, evangelist, witness. No, he says, of this gospel, I was made. Do you remember when he was made to be a minister? He didn't come seeking God came knocking, right? God knocks him down. God comes to him. God calls him. And that's the way it is for you as well. You know, we we often think we're the one who's seeking, but in reality, it was God who was seeking us, opening our eyes through regeneration to see the glory of Christ. That's what happened with Paul. He says, I was on the road to Damascus. Jesus comes, knocks me down. I call him Lord. He commissions me. I go. I was made a minister. And so were you when you were called. You are made a witness for Christ. He says, I was made a minister, though. Notice, according to the gift of God's grace. What a favor we have from God here. We're redeemed. We're purchased by the blood of Christ. We are forgiven. We have no sin debt for all eternity. We can stand before God and sing praises to his name. Yet that's not the fullness of the gift. We're called to be his ambassadors. And that's part of the grace that's been bestowed to us. Through salvation. He says, this gift of grace came. He says, it was given me by the working of his power. The ability to preach, teach, evangelize, witness is due to the working of his power. To me, verse 8 says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, notice, through the church, that's us now. He was given this ministry. He was equipped by the Spirit's power. And he was illuminated by the Spirit to write Scripture. He was given that ministry for this purpose, for us, in verse 10. So that through the church, now, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says, My ministry is empowered by God. That ministry came to me so that I could 
pen it so that it could be written down by the Holy Spirit so that the church could use it to continue the ministry of the gospel. It's through the church that the wisdom of God is made known, that hope is made known. It's through you and I individually as a part of the church. The idea that the church isn't important, that the organized body of believers is not important, is heresy. It is part of God's plan to have an organized, God-blessed organization that represents His Son on the earth until He comes again. It's through the church, through the organized church that He has ordained that we are equipped and made disciples and we reach the nations. Go to Ephesians 4 to see that. Ephesians 4, 11. Now, when you read this passage, I'm kind of jumping in the middle of the chapter here, but the context is when Jesus ascended, He went forth and gave ministers to the church to continue the message that He gave to us. And that's what you see in verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth. Truth here is speaking of doctrine. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the church he's talking about. It's through the church, in other words, that you individually are discipled by Christ. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. You are called to come together to be discipled corporately, and you're called to be personally equipped as you work individually in the body, as it's talking about here, speaking the truth in love. But it's through the church, through the fellowship, through the teaching that we receive here, that we are made disciples and equipped for our ministry. In verse 17 of Mark's gospel, again, Jesus simply said, I will do this. I will make you become fishers of men. And he does that through his revealed means of grace. Don't ever let anyone talk down about his church. Understand this. The body of Christ is represented in a way that is to exalt Jesus. It doesn't mean it's perfect. Okay, We're all broken sinners saved by grace, growing in sanctification. But it was the body of Christ that Jesus himself died for. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus died for. For the church. He organized the church. He controls the church. And he makes us disciples through his spirit and his word and through the church. We need to be submitted to his leadership. We need to be submitted to his word. We need to be submitted to his means of grace. So that we can grow together and evangelize the earth. Go back with me and look at Mark 1, 18. Through 20. Those that he calls in verse 17 and says, I will make you become fishers of men, they respond. And they respond again with urgency. It says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately is the key word there. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately. He called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is not hyperbole. This is literal. They heard the master's call. It compelled them to move out of whatever situation they were in immediately to listen to what he said, immediately to follow after his commands. That's the second thing we learned this morning. We learned that, number two, the master's voice calls his disciples into immediate submission. Not just a supernatural mission. You couldn't have the supernatural mission apart from immediate submission. You can't become a fisher of men until you have been discipled by the king. You're called to be discipled and to submit to his discipleship so that you can go out and accomplish his ministry. We see that happen in verses 18 and 20. When Simon and Andrew and James and John heard Jesus call, they submitted. 
It says it very clearly. They left their nets. They left their father's business. Now, they didn't leave him stranded. He had hired hands to help him. But they left their father's business. They didn't dishonor him. But they followed after Christ immediately. I think they did that because they knew that their sins had been set free. And I think that they were eager. They'd been set free from their sins, rather. And they were eager to now serve the one who is their Savior. I think we see that this gives us an idea of what it looks like to follow Christ as a disciple. If you follow him as a disciple, it will be evidenced by grace-driven obedience out of thankfulness for your salvation, which they had experienced. You are willing to follow him in obedience. And that's what they did. They followed him to become disciples. They followed him to become a disciple. And listen, to be a disciple means you're, you're basically going to be a student for life. You're committing your entire life to learn from this teacher. And that's what they were committing to. Whatever he said, they wanted to follow. They wanted to do. The call to discipleship isn't a human decision. It's a supernatural expression of salvation. It's part of the gift of salvation. It's part of the call of salvation. And it's evidenced by our obedience, our submission, our sanctification. Look what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2, if you have been called, saved by Christ, in other words, by God, who gave us the good news about what he has done for sinners and providing a sacrifice for us to replace us, to take our place, to be our substitute. If you have believed that, it will be evidenced in your life through submission. What it says in 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not Your own doing, it is the gift of God. That means salvation. Faith, grace, salvation, gift from God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We don't boast in how we came to faith in Christ. We don't even boast about what we do for Christ. Because that too is part of His gift to us. Verse 10 says, For we are His product, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. For good works, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the good works can be multifaceted. I would say this, every deed, every good deed that we're called to go into to exhibit has the gospel at the center of it. If you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a carpenter, if you're a pilot, whatever you're called to do and however you're called to do it, It should be done well in honor of Christ. You are to do good in it, but you are to do good in it so that you can get to the gospel and explain it. We are called to produce a life that's been God-exalted. God has brought us and given us everything in Christ. Therefore, we need to live a life that's producing works that represent the Christ that saved us. We do that by proclaiming the gospel through our good works. No one's ever saved by good works. No one's ever brought to salvation by us loving on them. They come to salvation because God calls them through a proclamation of the gospel. However, good works fit in with that in the sense that they see that we've been transformed by that gospel and they see our lives are being shaped by that gospel and they want to know the God of that gospel. And therefore, we tell them that truth about Christ. Every area of our life is to reflect our discipleship to Christ. I think that's really what Ephesians 2 is getting at. As we grow in the word, I think we will display the gospel in our actions. As we grow in the word, we will certainly proclaim the gospel with our mouth as part of our salvation. Now, go back with me to Mark. Mark 1, 16 through 20. Let me give you a little summary here. It tells us that those that Christ converts will actually hear and obey his message. They'll hear his call on their life. And they'll evidence that through grace-driven obedience, as we see the disciples here doing. Because Jesus is the greatest fisher of men that there's ever been. He catches those he calls. He cleans those he calls. He doesn't clean them before he catches them. He calls, he catches, he cleans, he sanctifies us. You see... Being a disciple is actually the evidence of our regeneration. It's part of our part of our sanctification. It is the part that displays the authority of Christ in our life, that displays that we are submitted to him, have been converted by him. 
And where there is true conversion, there will always be true submission, willful submission, grace-driven, thankful submission to the one who saved us. Because submission evidences the Spirit's presence and the Word's power in our life. God has spoken to us through His Word. He clearly states to us what we are called to do as His disciples. And His Spirit equips us and puts the desire in us to follow after Jesus as our Master and serve Him in every avenue of life. There is no secular and sacred. Everything is sacred when God calls you to salvation. Your hobbies, your jobs are to be used as an avenue of ministry for Jesus to exalt His name. But that begins with being submitted to his leadership, submitted to his direction. Again, if there's true conversion, you will desire true submission. Look with me at John's gospel again. John 15. You'll see that here in John 15, 1 through 11. Those that Jesus calls will abide in his commands. Those that Jesus brings to faith brings regeneration to by His grace, they will abide in His directions. They will produce fruit. They will exhibit the work of the Spirit that is at work in their heart through their life. So there's, there, there is, by the way, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a Christian who isn't submitted to Jesus from the heart. There are lots of Christians who fail to submit. They fail in their submission. They sin. They disobey. We all do that. But there is a heart transformation that takes place at regeneration. And we now love the things that Jesus loves and hate the things that Jesus hates. And so we would therefore desire to be submitted to his direction. Submitted to his commands, submitted to his purposes in our life, because we want to exalt his work. We want to declare his greatness that he has accomplished. And that's done by bearing fruit that honors Jesus. Remember that you're an ambassador. When people see you, hear you, watch you, they are watching the Christ who supposedly converted you. And you want to see your life, even when you fail, reflect Christ by repenting of your sins. And by running to his means of grace in the word and the church and seeking accountability and help so that you can do what it says in this text. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, we get a lot of pruning because we're not always producing the kind of fruit that we need to be producing. Sometimes it's like instead of a grapefruit, it's like a grape. And so he prunes back and he disciplines us. And again, for us, that comes through the means of the church. Accountability here, teaching here, training here. He does that so that we can bear more fruit, more evidence that he is at work in us. Verse 3 says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now there's a recognition there. We can't bear fruit if we're not part of the root, right? If we're tied into the root by sheer supernatural nature, we will bear the fruit of our Savior here. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So whatever we're doing, whatever fruit that we're bearing, it's because we are tied into Christ. He is at work in us through His Spirit and through His Word, accomplishing His purposes, exalting His Father, using us as ambassadors to do that. But apart from His work, we can't do anything right. So every good thing we do, we attribute back to Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, Verse 6 tells us really clearly, there is no such thing as permanent carnality in the Christian life. We're all carnal at times, right? I mean, you, you do sin, right? That's carnal. That's fleshly. But it is not your habitual, continual state. If it is, you're not a part of the vine at all. You are not deriving any juice, any 
fruit from being abiding in Christ. You are on your own, therefore you cannot produce fruit. You may be like those who say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. A sheer profession of faith in Christ doesn't mean anything. It's the fruit that flows out of the life that distinguishes us from this branch in verse 6. And that fruit we know comes as a result of regeneration through the Spirit's power. But nonetheless, it's evident. Even if it is a grape instead of a grapefruit. It's there. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You want to know how to glorify God? Here it is. It's by abiding in the vine, in the vine that is connected to Christ that's feeding you so that you can bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's or my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There is a fullness of joy in abiding in Christ's commands. And you know this from experience, right? As Christians, there is no greater pleasure in your life than when you're witnessing for Christ. As you're sharing the gospel, talking about what God has done in Christ Jesus, and you're telling people the good news, there is something boiling inside of your heart that says, this is why I was given salvation. This is my joy. This is what I'm going to do for eternity. And there is great joy, Jesus says, in those who do that because they are abiding in his commands. They're reflecting the work of his spirit. They're glorifying the father who sent Christ to be their savior. Where there's true conversion, there will be true submission. If there is no submission to Jesus's lordship and direction and word and authority, there is no evidence of true conversion. No fruit, no root, no salvation. You know, you, you, read, you read through the scripture and you see it clearly that those who were saved weren't all that much. I mean, they were just common men, yet they were doing things that were just amazing. Things that they had no qualifications for. God was using them, transforming them to exalt his greatness in them, not themselves. That's what he does with you and I, too. We're nothing. But what we have in us is greater than anything in this world. And we are given this message as a disciple, as an ambassador, to proclaim it so that God will be exalted through the bearing of much fruit in our lives. That's what we see in Mark 1, 16 through 20. We learn there that when Jesus fishes for men, he gets them. He gets all of them. Not just their profession. He gets their submission. They're captured by his voice. They're transformed by the power of his grace. You can see that in Peter's life, right? When Jesus caught Simon Peter, he was an uneducated fisherman. And Jesus made him into a special sent messenger who we now know as Peter the preacher, an apostle. He labored with Christ. He was anointed by Christ to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost and see thousands converted. An uneducated fisherman did this. A man who had a big mouth, but little to back it up. Whenever trouble came, he ran in the garden. But here, when he faces all this opposition and acts for preaching the gospel that he ran from, he stands up like a bear and he screams out with bold confidence that they nailed their Savior to the cross. They were guilty. He had no fear because Jesus had transformed him by the power of his grace. And it started with the voice that came to him through the message of the gospel. When Jesus caught Andrew, that's in this text, he took Andrew, who really doesn't have much of a testimony except for one thing, which is fantastic he took andrew who was a nobody and an unknown fisherman and he made him i think the new testament's greatest evangelist how do you think peter came to know christ his brother brought him to jesus 
Every time, except for here and when you see the listing of the apostles, the 12 apostles, every time you run across Andrew's name, he is bringing someone to Jesus. He was consumed with his master's voice. And the power of his master's voice was transforming everything in his life. Every friendship he engaged in, he immediately thought, this man or woman needs to know my Savior, my Master, my Redeemer. Come, let me take you to Jesus. That's the way it ought to be in our lives as well. You may be completely unknown, common, plain, like me. Yet God may use you to bring many, many people to know Jesus. You are, you are scattering that seed because you have been given great grace through Christ. And many may come as a result of that to know him. When Jesus caught James and John, I find it very interesting. These two brothers that he caught, he gave them the name Sons of Thunder, right? He gave that. I think that was partly because they were kind of impetuous. I mean, they, he, he gave them this name. And yet it's funny to me because later on, we don't really hear much about church history talking about those two men as the sons of thunder. What we hear today because of God's call on their life when Christ called them, we don't hear of them being called sons of thunder. They're known today because of Jesus' call as John the Beloved, the man who leaned against Christ's breast. And James is known as James the Martyr, one of the first to die for their Savior. John was so devoted that he followed Christ throughout his entire life and even into imprisonment, feeding and discipling people all along the way, even though he was imprisoned for his Savior. He did not stop. That's when we have the book of Revelation. He did not stop proclaiming. The other, James the martyr, he was so devoted that he followed Christ not throughout life, but unto death, according to Acts 12, 1 and 2. He died for his master. Simon and Andrew and James and John knew that Jesus was not just their savior. <laughs> he was their master. He was their commander in chief. And what's interesting to me is when you read this account in Mark 16 through 20. What I what I picture is are these four men who have been following Jesus around, went back to their vocation and were kind of just back in the groove of living. And yet at the same time, when Jesus shows up in Galilee and begins to preach publicly, their ears were attuned. And it's as if they were fishing with one hand on the net and one eye on the shore looking for their Savior. And when they saw him, they were as if leaning over the boat toward him, waiting to hear this call. They were eager. And when Jesus says, follow me. I can't imagine these men not jumping out of everything and running to him immediately. And that's the way it should be for us. When he called you to salvation, were you eager to follow him? Were you filled with immediate urgency to follow him as your master and declare his greatness to others? I'm sure you were when you were converted. I'm not sure you are now. I'm not sure I am now. And I think that we need to be reminded of what he's done for us and what our call is in Christ. We are to be eager disciples, learners, looking for opportunities to become fishers of men. That should be your passion. You simply need God's spirit and God's word. Jesus chooses common people to be disciples. He chooses common people to be the proclaimers of his message. He makes the common sacred through his spirit and through his word and through his church. He gives us the power that we need to accomplish our ministry. Listen, our ministry at Sovereign Grace, our ministry doesn't lie in anyone's skills or anyone's talents or anyone's intellect. The power of our ministry here in this church comes from the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Christ. Either we preach Christ or we fail. Either we exalt his work or we shut the doors. There's no purpose in being here. If the gospel itself can't convert people and build the church, nothing I can do will do it. Nothing Nate will do will do it. Only what Christ can do through his ordained means. As we become disciples, as we become fishers of men, relying on that, God will be glorified through our ministry here. 
And his power will flow through our ministry here. The 12 disciples in this gospel of Mark that we see later on came to be known as the 12 apostles. They were common men. And yet we know that God used those common men like you and me to turn the world upside down according to the gospels. They were effectual and powerful due to the power of the gospel that they had been given. That was the power behind their ministry. The message was God-blessed. The message was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And the good news for us is we have that very same message inscripturated for us. And we have that very same spirit dwelling in us. We can turn the world upside down, not by our power, but by our faithfulness to our Savior's message. Through His power, through His Spirit, we are called to go into the world and become fishers of men. Again, the disciples that Jesus calls are simply ordinary sinners saved by His grace. And He still works through that to reach the world with His glorious gospel. Look with me, lastly, at 2 Corinthians to see that. I'm just happy and hopeful that God does still choose ordinary people to proclaim His extraordinary message to the lost and to edify the saints. That message we see here, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, it says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That implies obedience to him, right? Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Christ's disciples, he's saying here, Christ's disciples have this supernatural power contained inside of them and clay pots or jars of clay cannot contain it. It must shine forth. It must come out of us. And it will. If you've heard the voice of Jesus, if you have submitted to be a disciple, you will become a fisherman. You'll become one who goes into the world to represent Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We preach a message that transcends us, that has transformed us, and that will save sinners. There's no doubt. I have all the confidence in the world in the gospel, none in myself. But as a disciple, I'm called to learn how to be faithful with the message. That's my call. That's your call. So your call is to be faithful and to learn. And the way in which you do that is you submit to God's Authority and direction. One of those things that God has granted us in the church is this fellowship this morning. This is a means of discipleship. Wednesday night Bible studies aren't just fun, optional nights for Christians. It's part of being a disciple. If you're going to learn to be a fisher of men, you need to be fed and trained and taught the word of God. So that you're not out there preaching yourself, trusting in your abilities but so that you can be equipped here to go out there and preach Christ and His glory. And God will be exalted through that. My only, my only uh, regret is we don't have every night of the week to study this. I guess if we had every night of the week to study this, we'd have to be out every night afterwards proclaiming this. And that would be alright too. There is a world around us that needs to see the disciples of Jesus. And you're it. You in this church in particular, I believe, are equipped with a gospel message that is not given just to comfort you for your salvation, but is to move you into obedience and submission. We, we aren't coming here just to fill our heads. Our hearts and minds are filled so that we can actually be empowered to go into the world with this message. This message will transform everyone. Sinners will be held accountable who do not repent. God's people will be brought to faith and edified through this message. That's the ministry of the church. If you want to be an effective disciple, you can't do it alone. Even here we see it. Jesus calls men together 
to grow in Him and work in Him, walk in Him, so they can go into the world and establish the church. And here we are. We need each other. We need His power. We need His grace. We need His Spirit. And we need His Word. Let's pray and give Him thanks. Lord, that which we need, You've already granted to us in Christ. For that, we give You thanks. We thank You that You have called us to be Your ambassadors. We thank You that You have made us disciples and that we are now able to learn of Your greatness and Your glory through Your Word and through the church. We thank You for this gift that You've granted us in giving us teachers that can explain Your Word, that can hold us accountable to Your Word, that can walk with us when we go through the difficulties in life by guiding us in Your Word. Father, we thank You that You have not left us alone. You gave us the church as a means of grace. We thank You that in the church and through the church, the manifold wisdom of who You are is made manifest in the world. Lord, I pray that we would see our role as the body of Christ, the incarnate body on earth, representing the resurrected, coming Christ. Father, help us to recognize our call and your voice this morning as we submit to you as our master. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.